This is OTB AM. We had a good garden and the hurling garden, but both of them were the front gardens. I know why we call one of them a good garden, because both of them were the very same. But we weren't allowed hurling the good garden any of it. In the hurling garden, the sideline was three bands of barbed wire. So, like, not alone were you jostling trying to win the ball, you're trying to fight the, the barbed wire as well. And, you know, whether there's 2E there or whether there's 10E there, you made a match. Yeah, they were the days, like, but they're, they're brilliant. And you refereed them fairly yourself, in fairness. But, you know, there's often fights and games, probably. <laughs> OTB AM, Ireland's only sports breakfast show, weekdays from 7.30 a.m. only on OTB Sports Radio. Live 24-7 on the GoLoud app. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB Gold. The very best of off the ball. Hello and you're very welcome. It's Joe Malloy here. We're bringing you some OTB Gold, a collection of the very best off the ball interviews from the past 17 years. Today, the legendary journalist Jerry Eisenberg talking to us after the passing of Muhammad Ali. This was on June 3rd, 2016. Ali had just died. Who else but Jerry Eisenberg to remember Muhammad Ali? And as usual, he was uh, quite brilliant on the subject. What will follow this chat is another piece of Eisenberg brilliance where he joined us a few weeks later to talk about the story of Ali in exile. Both great pieces. How could they not be? The subject is Muhammad Ali, the journalist and guest and off the ball, Jerry Eisenberg. So sit back and enjoy. OTB Gold. I am the greatest. By Cassius Clay. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He was once described as the world's most famous man, and indeed it's difficult to think of even a contender. Ladies and gentlemen, Muhammad Ali. I'm gonna float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Play and listen and listen, misses a long left lead to start it off. Lands a left jab on the nose. Then listen, misses the right to the body and Clay keeps dancing. Clay doing thus far what he said he would do. Lands a light left to the right ear of Liston. Now it's Liston stalking, but Clay bobbing, weaving, goes in low with a light left to the body and then backs away. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Johnny Liston's not coming out! Johnny Liston is not coming out! He's out! The winner and the new heavyweight champion of the world is Patrick Clay! And I said, Joe's gonna come out smoking and I ain't gonna be joking. I'll be pecking and a-poking pouring water on his smoking. Then this might shock and amaze you, but I will destroy Joe Frazier. There have been many questions put to me why I refuse to be inducted into the United States Army, especially as some have pointed out, many have pointed out, when not taking the step I will lose so much. They told me that this was the Emerald Isle. Believe me, they're right. I've never seen such a green country in all my life, not even Kentucky. Roman throwing more punches now. Maybe this could be the tactic of Ali to let the man punch himself out. Another sneaky right hand. This time he worked over the shoulder of Roman.
My title was taken a couple of times without being defeated in the ring. And uh, just to give it right back like that, I don't think would be fair to my fans, not a boxer, not myself. So I think I'm gonna hang around and haunt the game a little while and hold my title for a while, take on all challenges. The government and people of the Republic of the Philippines, in cooperation with Don King Productions Incorporated, proudly present the Thriller in Manila. That was the biggest round of the fight for anybody. Frazier was within a month or two of going down. I think it's gonna be over. It's all over. I told you, all of my critics, I told you all that I was the greatest of all time. Wanna beat Sonny Liston? I told you today, I'm still the greatest of all time. I am the greatest. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. This brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. He is the greatest. <laughs> this kid fights great. He's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. <laughs> this kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. <laughs> and as you lie on the floor while the ref counts ten, you pray that you won't have to fight me again. The fistic world was dull and weary. With a champ like Liston, things had to be dreary. <laughs> then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans a-running with cash. <laughs> Cassius Clay. champion of the universe. <laughs> Don't make me a clown, but it's just what I want. A heavyweight crown, because I am great. I am the greatest. So, uh, that's released in August 1963 by Cassius Clay. Right. Before he becomes Muhammad Ali. Before he wins the heavyweight title. <laughs> before he's actually the greatest. Before he's, um, you know, done all the things that he says he will then do. Which is uh, pretty amazing. Wow. That is impressive. It is, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to do all this stuff and this is who I am and I'm going to build up myself and then I'm going to deliver. Yeah. What a cool voice. It's good, isn't it? Like he sings there like a man who's been world champion. Precisely. Because you would think at the time you would be laughing at that. Gotta f- uh, fake it till you make it, I suspect. It's the Tell me about it. Um, right. I am delighted to say that just before we came on air, I got to speak with the legendary Jerry Eisenberg. Um, I made the point that obviously it's a very sad time, but when a career and a life has been so important, so fully lived, sometimes it feels like we should be celebrating Muhammad Ali today as opposed to just mourning. Well, of course, that's right. Uh, 
<clears throat> whenever anyone passes, people talk about legacies and everything. But uh, his legacy is firmly implanted in my mind. First, I'll tell you a short story. Uh, the night before he fought Larry Holmes, he came to my room, and uh, I said, I don't think it's such a great idea, and I can't tell you anything while you're here. And he got a little, I think he did, well, anyway, I don't think he was pissed off, but I think, I just think he wanted to prove a point. He ripped his shirt off. He said, look at my body. Look at it now. And it was eerie. It looked just the way he had looked when he fought Sonny Lucy the first time. And I said, well, you could have done that at the European Health Spa. I don't think it make much sense. I didn't know he'd been on diuretics, so he had no strength at all. Anyway, the night of the fight was terrible. He threw, I don't think he threw one punch the whole fight. And I remember the most unprofessional moment of my career. I jumped up and I yelled at the referee, Richard Steele, stop it, stop this freaking thing. Are you crazy? You're going to get him killed. And I looked around and realized what I had done. It was the most unprofessional thing I ever did. I just sat down like an idiot. Anyway, the fight ended finally. And now it's about 3 in the morning and I did some, yeah, we were in the casino. I gambled a little bit. I lost. I lost a little more. I was just pissed off at the world, and I went into the men's room at 3 a.m., and this elderly Afro-American gentleman hands me a towel, and uh, I say elderly now because actually he's younger than I'm 85 now. He's younger than I am now, but back then he was a lot older than me. And I said, you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, no, go ahead. I said, did you bet on this fight? And I, he said, yes, I did. I said, who did you bet on? And this is where the legacy comes in. He looked at me and he said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. That's incredible. And it, 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 in his case, it had to do with how he's fight for equal rights for, for blacks. But actually, it goes beyond that. That really is, he gave everybody dignity. Dignity about the war, dignity about, with all the laughter and all the fun and, and then all the hatred in the country divided. The fact is, if you look back now, his legacy was, his legacy was dignity. Was he aware of that at the time? Or is it only afterwards? Was, was, was Ali aware of the fact that he was touching these people in a, in a meaningful, long-lasting way? I, I mean, and I don't mean... No, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think, it, well, it became a habit to him. And he's, I'm the greatest, you know, you know who I am, look at me, and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, excuse me, he, he um, it was automatic all I can say about that, I don't think he was aware of that. He was aware of being, you know what it was? He was aware of being Muhammad Ali, and that was enough for him. Do you have any recollection of what point he became aware of that? I think it was, I think, just the way he knocked people out. It was the same thing was at Chris. Uh, he saw it repeated, repeated, and he saw the country's mood swing. And, and I don't think he analyzed, I don't think he analyzed everything in his life, except maybe another fighter. Um, but what it, it had to stick with him because it was changing and, and the changes caught up to him, and that's the way it was. I'll tell you, um, he was a guy at his best, his absolute best, in three situations. When he was with kids, little kids, alone. When he was with older people and just them. And when someone would stop him on the street and say, Oh, I, you know, I just went to the movie theater and I saw you fight John on it. And he'd look at him and he'd say, and it was, again, a standard pad line. But he'd say, you're not as dumb as you look. And the guy would light up, and you knew the guy said, I got it. I'd go back and tell that story at the water cooler. I got on the construction job. I could be sitting on it. 
lunchtime with my lunch bucket between my knees, and I could tell him I saw Muhammad, and this is what he told me. Um, and and uh, he was infectious. People were his opium, which is the reason for a couple of the comebacks. He had to be where the people were. The, the, in, in, in history, you know, he becomes this iconic figure, the time man of the millennium and all that kind of stuff where kids today think, okay, well, he must have been popular the whole way through. But obviously, after he becomes Muhammad Ali and stops being Cassius Clay, part of America is convulsed and he's a very divisive character. At, at what point does that start to change? And Long after, well, it changed a little. You know, he was not embraced as the patron saint of the anti-war people, no matter what, you know, what revisionist history says. When he became their hero was when it was clear that he had stuck it up the man's rectum, that he was going to fight, and he was going to have his day in court, and he was not going to step forward. The pro-war people then began to adopt him. They weren't pro-war. They were, they were, I'm sorry, I mean the anti-war people. They weren't anti-war. They were anti-that war. And, and uh, I, I think that's when their mood began to change. What happened with Ali... Changed Ali, uh, changed us all with time. Time, time changes people. What was outrageous? Uh, uh, one moment, twenty years later, which is really the blink of an eye in the history of man. Twenty years later, it becomes something else. Now, this is a guy who, who, who one thing about him, he never compromised his principles, and he never told anybody, to my knowledge, don't go to the war. He just said, this is what I will do because I'm, this is what I believe God wants me to do. I'll tell you a story about whether he would have gone to jail or not. People say, well, you know, he had the money and he played the lawyers and he was going to do this, going to do that. When he was, he and Ernie Terrell were supposed to fight in Chicago and he had announced he wasn't going to take the step forward, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He went to Canada and he fought George Cavallo. And, you know, it was a one-sided mismatch. George was a great guy and a game guy, but you know, he he didn't have the skills to cope with Ali. But I went up there, and I went to the gym where Ali was training. And if I ever make a movie, uh, direct a movie, it's a boxing movie, it's going to be filmed in that gym. It was called the Sully AC Gym. And the stairs creaked when you went up, and the windows were so dirty you could barely see it. It looked like a fight gym. And I walk in, and there's a kid in the front of it banging away in a heavy bag, and nobody else. I said, geez, I came to the wrong place. And then I said, hey, kid, where's everybody? And he just motioned to the back. Went to the back, and Allie was laying face down on a rubbing table. And um, and that, he said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, there's a fight. He said, oh, you know, this ain't no fight. I said, well, I'll tell you, Mohammed, Canada is giving... Uh, political asylum to people who choose not to go fight in Vietnam. And honestly, I'm here to, to see if you go home. I didn't say home. I said, I'm here to see if you go back. And it was the only fight we ever had in 60 years of friendship. Jumped off the table, got on my face, and he's going to hit me so bad. He said, you should know better. How can you say that? He said, America's my, this is word for word now, America's my birth country. And no one's going to tell me I can't go back, and I'm not going to stay away from it. And 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 that's the way it's going to be. Elijah Muhammad went to jail because he was God told him not to fight in a war, and it was good enough for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. It's good enough for Muhammad Ali. That's it. 
And um, I was convinced in that instant with the emotion that he, he never spoke that emotionally or, or in anger to me. And I, I was convinced he would go to jail. Yeah. You that... know, a lot of people don't know this. I don't know whether you do. You know, he never won in the Supreme Court. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I'll tell you what really happened. And most people don't know this. Thurgood Marshall, who was a black man, was a Supreme Court one of the justices. And he had to recuse himself for the deliberation because he was working in the Justice Department at the time the case against Ali first started. So they voted without him. And it was 5-3, Ali goes to jail. And then Justice Harlan was sitting in his office and his law clerk came in and he said, you know, I don't know if you know this, sir, but the court-appointed examiner said he was a conscientious objector. Now, let me deviate for a second. That's how they decided in those days. The examiner made his sat with him alone, made a judgment. He was appointed, he was appointed by the government. And if he said, yes, he is a conscientious objector, the draft ends for him. He didn't have to go. And um, normally, the examiner's word is law. In this case, they chose to take the FBI report, ignore the examiner, whose name was he's a retired Republican judge, a little bit to the right, not, not right wing, but a little bit to the right of center. And, and he was a respected uh, guy in Louisville. And they ruined him because his son later told me uh, when I was doing a television show, he called the show, and he said, Mr. Eisberg has it right. He said, they really broke my father's heart. Mm. In any event, um, they they were going to draft him. Well, it went to all the courts, and when it gets to the Supreme Court, and, and so he tells this law clerk, says, you know, the court examiner, Mr. Judge Grauman, he said he was, and I, I wish you'd just read the documents again. I don't mean any offense, but here's some information about Islam and the, and about the nation of Islam, which is sort of halfway between um, an old uh, theology and something that Elijah Muhammad invented. And and then you tell me, and the judge said, you know, young man, I want to thank you. I'm changing my vote. Now the vote's 4-4. But in a Supreme Court, in a 4-4 case, he goes to jail. Because there's no exoneration, which means they kick it out. They go back to the. Uh, they just. It's like they're saying, we won't hear this case. Yeah. Well, Justice uh, Stewart, who voted to set him free, they had another conference because Harlan had changed his vote. And Stewart said, "Listen, I know the guy doesn't belong in jail, and the truth is, every one of you know that too, and they probably did know it." Um, and you guys are afraid, though, of setting a precedent which will change the structure of the draft. And uh, they said, yeah, that, that's really the case. He said, okay, I found a way we can take care of this matter, and nobody gets hurt, and we don't set a precedent. What we do is, you guys look at the FBI report again. If you look closely, you know what you're going to see? It never said why the draft boys were drafted. It said he's this, he's that, he said this, he did this, but it never says this is why. So all you have to do is say they, they didn't prove the case, and then you have to say, throw it out on a technicality, which means if a lower court wants three times, they can, which they won't. He goes free, and we have not set a precedent. And that's the reason 
he was free. Okay, so there was a, a legal fudge which allowed everybody yep. to come out of the system yep. when, and, and pretty much everybody was happy. They, well, everybody wasn't happy but in the country at that time. The, you know, they wanted him to go. A draft dodger and this and that. And it was a black-white situation. And it was a, a war, no war situation. And it didn't please anybody, really, uh, because it was never made public. Because they don't publish deadlocked opinions. So it was never made public, and it was never prosecuted on that basis. And the technicality meant they couldn't send him to jail at that point. And nobody wanted to retry him. And that was, it was a pain they asked to the courts. And that was it. Jerry, I know you've got to rush to, to get a plane. So I have one last question for you. From... As a man, obviously, there is so much to talk about, and, and we've talked a good bit about some of the things which have cemented his place as an icon. Obviously, his ability as a fighter got him the platform to do that. From his fighting career as a boxer, what's your abiding memory of Ali? What's the thing that def- def- defined him as a well, fighter? Well, I'll, I'll say one thing before I answer that question, and it's this. Was he the greatest? No, he was not the greatest. Um was he the great? Well, I don't think he was even the greatest heavyweight. Joe Lewis was. Was he a great fighter? Yes, absolutely. He was a great fighter. There's a big difference. But what he was, he was the one fighter who had the largest impact, not only on America, but on the whole world, partially because of his ability as a fighter, but mainly because of his personality and how he made this country see the light. Now, I want to say this about about uh, how I remember him. He beats Foreman. It rains like hell. If the fight had been an hour, if the rain had come an hour earlier, there wouldn't have been a fight. He goes back to the military complex where we're staying. We write, we finally get a bus. We finally, they bring us, us a bus, they take us back there. So I'm with someone, I don't remember who it was, and, and um, one guy. Well, you know, there were only about 30 writers there. And I said to the guy, you know, I was, it was so rushed to get this over with. I really want to take a second crack at it. You want to go look for him? And the guy said, yeah, you know, this is 30,000-acre complex. You know, how the hell are we going to find him? I said, well, I'll tell you where we'll look. We'll go look by the river. And damned if he's not there. All by himself. Nobody else. And we were staying at the river bank, so it's elevated. We're standing on the bank. He's down on the shore, staring into, across the river at what used to be French Congo. And he, all we see is the back of his head and body. And he's not moving a muscle. And it seemed like it lasted forever. And uh, for once, two newspaper men had the brain not to open their mouths. So we never knew we were there. And then suddenly, he takes both his arms, throws them parallelly straight up toward heaven and stands there in that rocky pose. And then he turns, and he sees us, and he walks back, and he says, uh, fellas, I can't explain to you what tonight means. And if I did, you couldn't understand it, but I can tell you this. It is the most important night of my life. And and I will always see it. That's my memory of him. Not the shaking hands. Not the way which most people don't know. He burned himself on the arm when he lit the Olympic torch. None of that. I, I remember him, his Fraser fights, and, uh, because they were classics. But what I really will remember is him standing there, arms reaching for the sky, 
And in that moment, not knowing anybody else was there, and in that moment, for me, he was king of the world. OTB Gold. I've heard you speak before about what you're doing now and how you enjoy it. But I just wonder, being quite, quite honest with us, are there times when you miss being heavyweight champ of the world? No, they miss me. Uh, I know that. No, I don't miss it. I'm not the missing it. See, I would like to say one thing. Whites have been, you may say, why is he always talking about whites and blacks? Because everything happened to me is racial. It's all based on race and religion. You understand? Many boys I know, Joe name of George Hamilton, get out of the army and do everything, and I'm the scapegoat. You understand? So I got to think like this, because I'm a victim of all this. Um, you know there are white kids in jail for five years, don't right, you? In fact, right. those Baltimore guys didn't get two years. They got six, which is well, more than they got two and a half. No, no. You're talking about the Berrigan got, got well, six. Well, it must have been a Wisconsin. No. But what I would like to say is this. Your question was... Uh, Do you miss it sometimes? You no. miss being the best fighter in the world? I, no, I am the best. I don't miss being the best. But you'll never be able to prove that again. Oh, well, I don't have to prove it. Can you name somebody that not can right as now. much as Hitman? No. So I'm not... See, <laughs> You've been brainwashed to think that I'm not the champ. No, nope. no. Nope. I just wonder if you missed what no, you were doing. No, I missed the money, not boxing. <laughs> this, this I've been truthful. The money. I, I can box tomorrow. I can go to the gymnasium, call my sparring partners. We can box all day, but I won't get no money for it. <laughs> Undoubtedly, one of the most compelling parts of Muhammad Ali's life is the point where he was no longer recognized as the heavyweight champion of the world because he was prevented from fighting. Ali refused to join the US Army. He refused to fight in Vietnam. He was tried and convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. While he was fighting his case through the courts, he was prevented from boxing and stripped of his title. He was 22. Joining us to talk about why this matters so much is Jerry Eisenberg, a legend of the sports writing game who covered Ali throughout his career for the New York Star-Ledger. That clip we just played has most of the themes that we really need to touch on to cover this period properly. There's politics, there's money, race, boxing, and that bulletproof self-confidence. But I wanted to start by asking you, what brought Ali to the point of a religious and spiritual awakening? Well, first of all, he joined a group called the Nation of Islam which, uh, although they would be very upset about it, it's really, it's more of a cult than a religion. But today I can tell you, since we were so close, that he's a devout Muslim. He's a Sunni Muslim. He prays several times a day. And uh, it's totally removed from what, from what, what, what he joined at that time. But that served his need. Because the one thing I will say about Elijah Muhammad, who read that, was that uh, he did bring political awareness and respect in many ways, awareness of self-respect uh, in many ways to people who joined that movement. And that's when Ali first flirted with it. But I want to tell you something about his sincerity as far as uh, jail and, and, the, um, and the prospect of jail. And, you know, people, a lot of people don't understand it, but I was there, and I saw it firsthand. So I'm going to tell you a story about a trip he made, or I made, to Canada, when he was supposed to fight Ernie Terrell, and the, and the, uh, he was kicked out, and a couple of others were kicked out, he had nobody to fight. So what happened was uh, he went to um, Canada to fight Chevalo. Well, it wasn't going to be much of a fight. We all know that because George's biggest asset was he fought with his chin. His chin and his heart, but not an awful lot of skill uh, against the better fighters. So I went up there, and I found him in a place called A.C. Sully's Gym. He's training for the fight. And uh, I go, I say, well, I'm going to go up there and see what's going on. And I walk up. It's a typical, it's like almost a, a fight gym, I mean, a club, fight club gym, 
you walk up the wooden stairs, you can't see out the windows. It's so dirty. I don't think anybody's seen out of them for years. And there's nobody in the place except a kid banging away on a heavy bag. Bang, bang, bang. And uh, I don't hear anything. And so I said, where's everybody? And before he can answer, I hear Ali from the back. So I go in the back of the gym. <clears throat> He's laying on a rubbing table, and Sharia, uh, the Cuban uh, refugee who was his masseuse and great friend, uh, is working on him. And he says to me, what are you doing here? And I said, well, somebody said there's going to be a fight. And he said, no, this is no fight. You know that why you're here. I said, I'm going to tell you the truth, uh, Muhammad. Uh, a lot of young American boys who do not want to go to Vietnam <clears throat> have been granted political asylum in Canada. And honestly, I'm here to see whether he go back. <laughs> it was the only fight we ever had. He jumped off the table. He got in my face. And he said, you should know better. You of all people should know better. How can you say anything like that? If I have to go to jail, I'll go to jail. I don't make the, the rules, and I'll abide by them. But I'll tell you this. No one's going to chase me out of the place I was born. And I walked out of there absolutely convinced he would have gone to jail, and I would still believe it today. Yeah. So his sincerity couldn't be questioned. But the, the, the point where he decides to make that decision and his involvement with the Nation of Islam, that, that kind of begins uh, just maybe in the, the 18 months or the two years up to the point that he becomes world champion for the first time when he's still Cassius Clay. He wins the title officially as Cassius Clay and two days later announces to the world that he's going to change his name to Muhammad Ali. And I guess from this remove, it's hard for everybody to understand that that was a bombshell to drop on America at that time in particular, because... Well, I, I was there, so what it happened. So let me tell you what happened. The day after he wins the title from listing, he comes in with a... And he's got several guys around him that I didn't recognize, and I was with the woman all the time, and they were members of the nation. And he said, um, somebody said, call him by the name, and he said, I'm not Cassius Clay. I'm Cassius X. And when the Honorable Elijah Muhammad gives me my, my real name, I will take it. That's just a slave name, and I appreciate it if you don't refer to me that way. But that itself was a bombshell right there. First of all, I'll tell you, most of the people in the room, uh, unlike me, did not know anything about the nation of Islam, never heard of it before, didn't know who the Honorable uh, Elijah Muhammad was, and were totally confused that he took umbrage at that. And then uh, he went on to say what he was all about. He said, I don't want integration. He said, I want separation because the black ants don't live with the black ants. The red ants don't live with the red ants. The tigers don't live with the lions. He said, this is, leave us alone. Let us grow. Uh, give us some land. And, uh, and I will fight. I will, be, I will be a champion of all the people. But uh, don't ever call me Cassius X again. Don't ever call me Cassius Play again. And within about a month, I think it was the next issue of a newspaper called Mohammed Speaks, which was Elijah Mohammed's newspaper. Uh, he gave him the name uh, Muhammad uh, Ali. Can you talk to us a bit about what role Elijah Muhammad played in American life at that point and what sort of a character he was? So the, the, there were obviously some consequences for Muhammad Ali to associate with the Prophet Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. Um, at that time, it wouldn't have been an organization, as you said, that was particularly well understood by those people who are running boxing, those people who are coming to fights and buying tickets, and those people who generally would have been supporters of Ali up to that point. 
You're absolutely right. And also, it was not totally understood by people who were in the nation. A number of them left, uh, as did Ali, to become Muslims. But it was more about, more about self-respect than Islam. Uh, was it, was it uh, racially uh, oriented? Uh, totally, totally. After all, when you go back to the early eschatology of, this, of that, uh, what called itself a religion, the white race came about because a mad scientist named Jacob took a uh, black man and stuck him in a test tube and preached it. Now, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but on the other hand, you know, how, how accurate is Adam and Eve? So you want to move, that's their belief. But the point was, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, lack of understanding always leads to mistrust. And, and, and Malcolm was short, Malcolm, by the way, who was a spokesman, he was a fiery spokesman and a moralist person, and later on understood a lot and recanted a lot of this, although that part is never talked about. Uh, but Malcolm frightened people because they didn't know exactly where he was going. Uh, and it, it, it struck a, a, a very well, fearful and angry chord uh, with white America. And with some of black America, too. So uh, his association with, um, with Elijah Muhammad was I, not frowned upon, but judged instantly. And we go from there. You know, I, I've got a friend who happens to be white, who is very close to Ali also. And he made a very good point to me. He said, look, you know, what Elijah did, he was the only one that was cleaning, taking people off drugs. He took them off drugs using hatred as a tool. If you want to keep helping the white man persecute you. But they did come off. So uh, Elijah's goal was to give them dignity. And uh, then it got totally out of hand. But uh, it got out of hand also on the way it was received. So there was no question that Ali uh, was was under tremendous pressure. You know, uh, first thing that happened when he announced it, there was a delicatessen owner who was the president of the WBA, who uh, named Lastman, I think that was his name, Took his, uh, um, took his title away. And then there was a series of people took the title, gave it back, took it away. I mean, there was no consistency. There was no intelligence. And when finally, and, and I go back to Toronto again, when he told me what he, what he believed, and um, that set the stage for the day he did not take the step forward in, in uh, Houston, uh, to uh, because that's where he had changed his residence too briefly uh, to join the army and say I will I will go. He said I will not go. Now, if you want, I will backtrack for you and tell you a little bit about how the manipulation that got him drafted. Would you like that? Yeah, please do. Okay. Most people in this country, let alone yours, do not understand how the draft system works. If you said you were a conscientious objector, and many people, uh, not a huge amount, but many people were legitimately felt that way. They could not go to war. They could kill people. They were against you. So he gets drafted, and he gets rejected for failing a test, and then he gets reclassified, and he's redrafted because they changed the rules. Now, they didn't change those rules because of him. They changed them because they needed more people, and they felt the standards and the test were too high. Well, now they, he says, I'm a conscientious objector, and I want to become a minister of, uh, of God, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which he never did, by the way. So 
there's two ways you 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 two two routes you go through to affirm or deny conscious objective status. Right? Yeah. The first route is you are um, studied by the FBI, and they come in with a report. The second route is the court. I don't report. The court appoints an examiner. You go in a room with this examiner. You don't come out till the examiner's made up his mind. And he comes out and he says, yeah, your name. Now, as far as I know, and I'm no historian, I'm no legal historian, certainly, but as far as I know, in no cases was the FBI report given precedence over the examiner's report. So they appoint a guy named Brownman. I don't remember his first name. He was a retired judge, and he was a conservative also, which is in there sort of rigged it a little bit. Well, Grauman goes in there, and when he comes out, he says, this man is a genuine conscience, subject in all conscience. I cannot say he should serve. They push that statement aside, and instead they go with the FBI report. And I'll tell you a little bit about that report in a minute. So now this hounds him, you know, until they finally get a clear, until he finally gets cleared by the Supreme Court, where he finally gets, you know, uh, upheld, uh, the, the, uh, Grauman does. But one day I was on the, I don't know if you know a fellow named, I heard of a fellow named Dick Cavett. He was a nighttime television host in New York City. And I'm on his television show. It's a nationwide show. And they asked me to talk about Ali. So I'm telling this story about Grauman. And the producer runs out, stands behind the camera, and draws his finger across his throat in the cut motion. And he, he's almost hysterical. So the camera says, we have to break for a commercial. We'll be right back after this. And the guy runs out and he says, you know what? Grauman's son is on the phone and he wants to talk to Jerry on the air. Well, uh, you know, as a guy in, in, in the media, you certainly can appreciate what his story that was. So uh, they put him on. And he said, everything that Mr. Eisberg said is right. And that my father was destroyed by it because he lost his friends and his business contacts. And they all turned against him. <clears throat> well, if they did that to him, you can imagine how it was for Ali. Yeah. I remember when Ali couldn't get work. I remember when he... When he, I remember loaning him twenty dollars in front of the Americana. I remember um, when uh, he was in a Broadway musical called Big Buck White, which I think lasted only like fifteen days, and sang a song called Mighty Whitey, and he was awful. He really couldn't sing, and and I mean he just went from thing to thing, and suddenly a guy named Gene Kilroy, who uh, very one of my closest friends in the world, <clears throat> Gene is. Um, was a white guy in Ali's camp. He chased away the hangers-on. There weren't as many hangers-on as people thought. There were a lot of people who wanted to be hangers-on, but there were some good people around him also. And 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 Kilroy just filtered him out. He wouldn't got to get through Kilroy, and Kilroy would say, you're not getting any deals here, so you might as well leave. Well, anyway, Kilroy said to me that um, uh, he felt very strongly about this, and when... Uh, he went ahead and made a contact with a uh, <clears throat> public speaking lecture agency and got Ali's speaking dates. And that's how Ali lived when he was in exile. 
Can you talk to? I him? remember hearing him speak at a local college, a small school called Jersey City State College that time. And uh, he get his audience is not all black, and but they're students. And he's on the stage, and as he's trying to speak, a guy yells down from the balcony, "I'll go in the army in your place for a thousand dollars." And now he looks up at him, the guy was black, and he said, "Brother." Your life is worth a lot more than a thousand dollars. Get that nonsense out of your head. So he was sincere right to the end. That period where he's in a Broadway musical and singing and <laughs> and on a lecture yeah. tour and and trying to support himself. At what point is the public support going back towards him? Because maybe we want to skip this, but Ali wasn't a very popular heavyweight champion of the world because there was a, a, a cruelty in some of his fights that where he wouldn't knock out an opponent. Angelo Dundee is shouting from the corner at one point, knock him out, knock him out. And Ali's like, no, I'm, I'm punishing this guy. And and he gets hammered by the boxing riders or several of the boxing riders at that point too. So he's he's signed up with the Nation of Islam, which no one understands. He's been cruel in the ring. He's been brash. He's been arrogant. He's been a completely different character than American sport and American history has ever seen before. And then he decides... I'm not fighting in your stupid war either. This is a, 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 a. I'm just trying to paint the picture of how unpopular he would have been. In- well, first of all, let me explain to you. <clears throat> he was not cruel in the ring. There were two fights where that happened. One was Floyd Patterson, and um, if there was animosity because of things that Patterson had said about him, he had said about Patterson. So that was a you know a, a two-edged sword. The trouble was Patterson wasn't a good enough fighter to do anything about it. The other was Ernie Terrell, and that's what I wrote and took him a task about it. Because in the corner, uh, a guy who, I'm not going to name the guy, but he, he was one of the Nation of Islam guys, is yelling, make him say your name, make him say your name, make him say your name. And now he's yelling, what's my name? And the guy is saying, you know, F you. And uh, uh, he really uh, beat the hell out of him. But on the other hand, I, I kind of wonder why the referee had not stepped in. I, I have my own criteria for stopping fights, and it's not the fact that the guy's still on his feet. It's the fact that the guy's not fighting back. But that's another story. So, and I took him a task about about that in the paper, and he never said a word to me. He read it, I know, or it was read to him one way or the other, and I, I know him, but he never said a word to me about it. But that behind him, and having said that, I will tell you this. This country was divided as never in its history over the Vietnam War. And Ali was not a hero to these kids who were demonstrating in the street uh, against the war. And he certainly wasn't a hero to the people who were pro-war. And it became, yeah, it was very, very racial. But what wasn't racial uh, was the aspect of what they thought was patriotism. And uh, what happened finally was that as Ali stuck to his guns, and then as the anti-war movement began to make more headway among a certain segment of the population, suddenly, you know, in the beginning, he was not their hero or their patron saint or anything else, but suddenly, because of the publicity that his case garnered, he they sort of swung to his side. <clears throat> and that made, uh, that made people look at him differently. And in the middle of all this, he's doing the the lecture circuit and going out and explaining, and I, I guess becoming a, a an even better performer than he was. 
I don't know. I, I don't even know if that's important. Or was it important that that time spent away from the ring in terms of his ability to then subsequently <clears throat> capture the public's imagination? Because the, the, the fight where he's fighting for the world title again is the richest fight in the history of boxing. Well, you know, the thing about it was also, <clears throat> look away from that for a second. Here's a guy who lost three years of his career at prime time. Can you imagine what he could have been? See, I don't, I don't think he was the greatest heavyweight who ever lived. I mean, I, I reserved that for Joe Lewis. But um, he was a great fighter. And in terms of impact, he had more impact on America than any fighter. And I included that Jack Johnson. And for those who listen to you and may not know who he was, he was the first black champion. And he was vilified. And he really went along with the act. He wanted to be a villain. And they finally put him in jail on a trumped-up charge of, uh, of um, transporting a woman across the state line for the purpose of sex, which wasn't true. She was his girlfriend and wherever she was. But the fact is, he was the guy. And to show you how this worked in America, you know, America is a young country still. And we had a lot to uh, to overcome in terms of solid what we thought was solid ideas uh, that shaped us in terms of prejudice and everything else. There was no black heavyweight champion after Jack Johnson until Joe Lewis, and there was no black man who fought for the title after Johnson until Joe Lewis. So, you know, there were, those were deep scars, and they probably a lot of the old scars surfaced, but Beyond that, it was you, you mix in the war and politics, you mix in white and black, and uh, he had no chance, you know, as as a public figure. How he did with with a lot of black people, of course, but on the other hand, when you when you look at the way the country t- changed, this guy is idolized all over the country, and I'm just talking about America now because I am not qualified to talk about any other country. Yeah. But I will say this. Um, I've seen that swing. Uh, I can see it in my mail and stuff like that. You know, I, I defended his right not to go to Vietnam if he were willing to go to jail, which he was. Uh, I had my car windows break up broken out with sledgehammers. We got in the office. We got we thought they were bombs. They were alarm clocks, really, but they were disguised. Um, we got feces in the mail. Uh, I got thousands and thousands of letters. And um, I began to wonder, you know, who is on trial, <laughs> him or me? But everything worked out so well. And, you know, I talk about the press and honesty, which I, I think really has really got out of it today, in, at least in this country. But then I, I, I worked for a guy who lost advertising and never told me what to write. I don't know to this day how he felt about it. I'm not talking about sports there. I'm talking about the guy who owned the damn paper yeah. and owned at that time 30 papers. Uh, stood up for me and said, you do what you, what you, uh, you're here because I want you to say what you think. And, and so that was the victory I felt came out of it, at least in, in terms, because the rest of the country swung the other way. There was a guy who I won't name who led the charge of, uh, Local area, New York City writers. And New York is, I, I'm actually, you know, uh, just a 
straighten out something. My paper is called the Newark Star Ledger, not yeah. the New York. Yeah. We're right across the river from New York. So, so uh, although it's, it's the same city, but there's a river running through between them. So uh, I, I really, this guy was sort of the, the, I was sort of the loyal opposition, and there wasn't any. Believe me, now Howard Coachell came along later, and you know, and 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 because he reached so many people on the tube, but had an impact. But but I was the first, and I'm only saying that because uh, uh, I want to I want to explain how I could empathize with him because I was catching a lot of crap. But the fact remains, uh, there wasn't any choice. This is this was a matter of of ethics, and if you have a constitution. And this is what the Constitution says and permits. Hey, 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 you cannot make it a mockery, you know. And 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 he, yes, he was my friend, but I would have defended him if he was a guy I didn't even speak to. OTB Gold. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation.